0: $25 each.
1: Visit LiveNation.com slash concertweek to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash concertweek to buy now.
3: I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio.
0: Hello and welcome back to the show. My name is Noel. Our colleague Matt is on
2: adventures, but will be returning soon. They call me Ben. We are joined as always with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here. And that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. It's the most wonderful time of the year. We've made it, fellow conspiracy realists, through trial and tribulation to another October. As you know, Halloween's our favorite holiday. So we thought, what better way to celebrate than to kick off this month with an episode on monsters not just one but two episodes uh this may not be the sort of exploration you were expecting and it's taking us across the planet from ancient times to the modern day i never thought we'd have to say it Noel, but this might be familiar uh to some of our fellow listeners who play Fortnite, at least part of it
0: oh yeah yeah please don't uh don't rag on us too hard we did our best the metaverse is a very interesting place, rife with, uh, yeah, kids that are mean to you. But no, it's super fun. This is actually an expanded version of what we did there. Uh, we sort of just hit the high points, and uh, this episode is actually going to be uh, some extra stuff for even folks that did manage to catch that uh, that metaverse um, exclusive piece of content. So
2: without further ado, here are the facts. Now, this is something, uh, Noel, that you and I have talked about at times in another show we do, Ridiculous History. For a lot of human history, for the span of human civilization, belief in what we would call monsters was. Not controversial. It was an accepted part of existence. You know, uh, these days, things like vampires and, you know, zombies or evil spirits are consigned to myth and legend and rumor. But once upon a time, they were considered very real, genuine environmental threats. Like you were really warning people not to go in the woods.
0: Yeah, it's true. And, and you know, in certain um, cultures and religions, they sort of take on more of the feeling of allegory or myth or sort of cautionary tale. But you're absolutely right; there are definitely cultures that still, to this day, to some degree, treat them with the same urgency as you might. You know, like you said, Ben, like a wild animal attack or something like that. You know, or there the idea of uh, some sort of dangerous human stalking the night. The power of belief uh, remains very, very strong um, in certain parts of the world, and I think you could, you'd be, you probably wouldn't be too hard pressed to find a person in America that, to some degree, believes in supernatural forces, whether they call them monsters or whether they call them you know, hauntings or or, uh, specters of some kind. Uh, I think that belief still certainly exists. Mm -hmm. So in the first part of
2: this two-part series, we're going to look at some examples of this, and we're going to ask for your help at the end, because again, there are examples of plenty, so much so that we are making this a two-part episode. Look, when we're When we're exploring the lives of people in communities in the past, we always want to take pains to say those beliefs do not in any way indicate these people or the communities in which they lived were foolish at all. Instead, again, they were working with the information they had. So there would be diseases you couldn't explain, maladies, strange atmospheric phenomenon. And so. People would approach this through their own cultural framework, and they were just as intelligent as people today, so they wanted to explain things, to recognize patterns. A curse could also be another explanation, and these entities weren't always sinister. I mean, there are a lot of helpful supernatural spirits in folklore, and if you're a student of anthropology or folklore history, none of this is particularly surprising, but there is one thing that might startle a lot of us listening today. Today, 2022, October, all across the planet, there are not thousands, not hundreds of thousands, but millions upon millions of people who believe at least some of those monsters of old, those creatures, curses, spirits, and ghouls, anything that goes bump in the night, some people still believe they're real. Here's where it gets crazy. So, like you said, Noel, we've talked about genuine beliefs in monsters and curses and even more modern legends that a lot of the rest of the world might dismiss. Uh, One of the things that I think always amazes outsiders happens in Iceland. And full disclosure, our pal Mission Control has traveled to Iceland, uh, I think not once but twice. And I had asked him off air a, a, a long time ago whether he encountered this, but believe it or not, Uh, There's a strong contingent of people in Iceland who believe in something very much like elves.
0: Yeah, there's a bunch of, there's a movie that came out maybe last Halloween. I think it's just called Elves, and it's basically like an Icelandic gremlins movie. Um, They're mischievous little bastards in this, and I think it's, uh, no spoilers, it's not a particularly great movie but there is sort of like a the precocious kids go out of the woods and discover like a tiny cute elfling and then of course by the fact that they have taken it you know into shelter the uh, the bigger meaner scarier elves come after it Um, but yeah no it's very much true and this is a a, uh, a belief also that kind of ties into I believe it was Icelandic. We did this on ridiculous history too about like the Yule lads. Remember the Yule mm-hmm. lads, like spoon liquor and and candle sniffer, yeah, like knee and slapper, humper, yeah. whatever they were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that isn't isn't that Icelandic as well? The Yule lads are uh, sort of the yeah they
2: occur in Iceland uh, and a couple of other countries. There the belief is like a. Uh, the gritty, disturbing origin story of Santa's helpers, kind of. They uh they are the children of a demonic monstrous figure. Uh they are associated with mischief nowadays, but back in the day they were associated with dangerous things like stealing children, you know? Uh I love that you bring up the old lads because they have a lot in common with the uh the Alfar or the um the elves, the hidden folk in Iceland, but yeah, this was um, this wasn't always just a story you told children to go, uh, guide their behavior. People did believe in this stuff, and even now, uh, you might. I was surprised to find in 2017, National Geographic uh, did a piece on this belief, and they found that more than 50 percent of people in Iceland claim to have some degree of belief in elves. Uh, they're not super evil, uh, and they're really closely associated with the bizarre and unique environment of the country. I mean, it's got lava fields, it it feels to me like if you're looking at Iceland from afar, you immediately think, okay, I'm either freezing or I get on the wrong side of a volcano and I'm burning. So like how do you explain if you're an early um if you're a person living early in early Icelandic history, how do you explain all this weird stuff?
0: It's interesting, too, because, I mean, Iceland is, does, it's a good point that you make, does tend to be a land of cultural extremes. I mean, you know, you've got uh, the most gorgeous, kind of like lilting, um, you know, ambient music, like by the likes of Sigur Rós and and Björk and stuff Mm -hmm. like that, and then you have this whole, like, Icelandic death metal movement that is just the absolute most extreme kind of harshest of music you can imagine, and I think the land and the landscape there, and just the kind of isolation tends to kind of create those kinds of responses and in, in, in folks that live there. Um, it, it's also very isolated, very expensive to live there just by virtue of how disconnected from everything is. I mean, it just must be like people just getting absolutely reamed with uh, with import taxes and such.
2: Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you were to ask Most people in Iceland, this question, or many people, if you were to say, do you believe in elves, you'll find that a lot of people sit on the fence. Some people think it's uh, a little bit childish, but, you know, they'll also say, hey, we've got a rich folklore here. This is a big part of our culture. So a lot of people won't apparently won't feel completely comfortable dismissing the idea out of hand in general it helps that these creatures are not seen as super aggressive so long as you treat them with respect. Their one big sticking point is that they're very, very territorial, and that, right. and that means construction can be a problem.
0: I love this idea that, you know, I mean, yeah, they're Keebler elves, of course, that we know and love or whatever. Uh, Maybe we're terrified by when we were kids in America, the little spokes things of uh, cookie fame. They live in trees, you know, with like doors in them and like little tree houses. Well, apparently uh, in Iceland, large boulders are thought to be the homes of of the elven kind, uh, which could be a real problem. If you're clearing out, you know, um, fields of, of, of stone to make room for new developments, uh, this kind of disruption could really rile up the, uh, the, the elves. Um, And there are certainly folks who believe that elves have kind of, you know, taken on sort of a Luddite role in uh, in, in smashing industrial equipment like bulldozers and, and making off with tools to slow down production.
2: Yeah. And elves also get blamed when
0: machines break or just stop operating with no apparent explanation. Mm hmm. Gremlin-type stuff, really. I mean, all the gremlins in America, they were, I think, commonly kind of thought of as as uh, as um, hijacking or uh, sabotaging planes, you know, in the wars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, this
2: is sort of a elf sabotage operation here. Uh, it also goes to personal injury. Like, a worker may sprain an ankle or break a leg, and at times— the, um, the actions of elves were blamed rather than human error or, you know, taking a misstep. In older stories, it gets a little bit rougher. You could see livestock being afflicted with a disease or an infection or even people falling ill or dying unexpectedly. However, you find yourself on the skeptic slash true believer spectrum You'll see that a lot of people in Iceland still do seem to take this seriously. Now, whether that's part of just respecting an ancient culture or whether that's genuine fear of harm, whatever the case may be, you'll see that it's not crazy uncommon for people working construction or building a road to divert a road kind of in an arc
0: around a big boulder instead of disturbing it or blasting through it. Yeah, it's funny, man. And uh, I think I think you have played Breath of the Wild to some degree, right, mm-hmm. on the yeah. Switch? Mm-hmm. You know those little Korok guys that, like, give you the seeds mm-hmm. that allow you to expand your inventory? Mm-hmm. They always live underneath uh, boulders and, like, tree stumps and things like that. And there's a little bit of elvishness about those guys too um and also you know gremlins by the way um you know are very much kind of an american creation uh, during the world wars and and seem to really jump off of a lot of this folklore that you're talking about and these ones you know are specifically uh i don't even think you have to piss them off i think that they're, they're just inherently kind of you know chaos magic wielders Yeah. Yeah. They're just agents of chaos.
2: And in in the case of elves in Iceland, lest we be casting aspersion upon their reputation here in the world of podcasting, it's important to note they're not all bad. As a matter of fact, I found one former member of Icelandic parliament even swears that a family of elves saved his life when he was in a car accident. Now, is that just something you say during a campaign or is that something he truly believes?
0: Story for another day. (laughs) <laughs> also, I mean, I mean, depending, I guess... I guess you're speaking to your base there, right? I mean, the the fact that someone would even be comfortable enough to even say that out loud with a level of belief. That wouldn't go over super well with politicians in the United States unless it's just like, you know, speaking to evangelical Christian kind of beliefs But the idea of being, well, actually, what am I talking about? (laughs) There's plenty of folks (laughs) on that side of the aisle that would absolutely say they've spoken to angels or that they've, you know, uh, had encounters, you know, of the third kind with things more out of scripture. Than yeah, than superstition or folklore.
2: Yeah, there's a there's a widespread belief system in the interventions of the divine and the infernal. It goes across, I would say, any almost any imaginable political spectrum. Uh, but this, yeah, it's true. Like if you if you were ever thinking, "Wow, the people of some other country must be so silly to believe in these things that I think are malarkey," you got to remember you're in a glass house. As well, because a lot of people in your country have beliefs, uh, have beliefs in things that would be considered supernatural. I mean, for, for in the case of Iceland, there's even an elf school where you can uh, take a day course that earns you a diploma in, I imagine, elfery. But uh, with that, we've we've shown you one, uh, one belief that is at least partially genuinely practiced by people in a country. Uh, so let's. Pause for a moment and we'll return with another even more popular supernatural belief.
0: each.
1: Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week
0: to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now.
3: I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's
1: just a shame, you know, that they took him from us
0: I thought they were gonna kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years I didn't say anything. Listen
3: to cold-blooded the Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
1: Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene
5: was we'll
4: much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with.
1: So you hide the books, Gene, and we on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man, Marie is a wise woman.
4: But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano!
1: Gene! Huh? Oh! Run!
4: So travel before it's too late. Your money will return, your time won't, and we're all too quickly approaching that final destination.
0: Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue.
2: Okay, here's one. We we won't spend too much time on this one because we did an entire episode on it. The jinn. When I love your point earlier, Noel, about the idea of many people in the U.S. believing in angels and demons. Uh, many, many people, especially of the Islamic faith, but not necessarily always Islamic, uh, believe in the jinn. Uh, you know, the idea that the Creator made... Uh, angels made human beings and made a third intelligent, uh, life form called the Jinn, crafted out of smokeless green fire. Um, it's nuts because I think, I don't know, growing up, uh, until I saw, until I started finding the right books in the library when I was about seven or eight, all I knew about the Jinn was, uh, Western depictions, you know, Robin Williams in Aladdin Mm. or Kazam slash Shazam, shout out Mandela. Which
0: one even is it? No one knows. Actually, a quick cursory Google search will tell you that it was, in fact, Kazam, right? Yes, it's Kazam. Shazam okay, cool. with Sinbad is another thing that is apparently that, not real. That only exists in like our collective unconscious for some reason. Right. right. Um, there's actually a, speaking of, of movies that, that do exist um, about Jin, there is a relative a new movie from George Miller who did uh, the Mad Max movies and of course like weirdly the Babe movies and the Happy Face movies. It is called Three Thousand Years of Longing, uh, and it stars Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba, and Idris Elba plays a Jin. Uh, and um, I have it's actually based on. On a short story called The Gen in the Nightingale's Eye by A.S. Byatt. Uh, I have not seen it yet, but it looks pretty interesting and uh, and very elaborate. And obviously kind of got, you know, a blank check to do whatever he wanted after that uh, Mad Max Fury Road just, you know, completely mm-hmm. blew the doors off everything. So um, looking forward to checking it out. Um, but yeah, Jen are interesting. There's a really another good depiction or a fun, silly depiction in the show, which I think you're also a fan of, been what we do in the shadows mm-hmm. uh, in the new season. Um, one of the vampires finds a genie lamp or a gin lamp and rubs it, and, and has this gin that appears to him. But the the kind of character is portrayed as more of like an accountant kind of, so not a lot of like you know fire and bluster and all this kind of stuff. He's just much more kind of like procedural about it, and very put upon by being in this guy's service and trying desperately to trick him. Uh, into making dumb wishes or you know to to lose you know wishes yeah what d- dungeons and dragons
2: would call lawful evil uh yeah there's always there's always kind of this associated monkey's paw with the idea of wishes and jinn in the western uh in the western framework but If you delve into the actual folklore, like pre-Islamic and Islamic beliefs, you'll see it goes much deeper than that. And as much as I love Robin Williams' riffing in Aladdin, it is not a super accurate definition. So check out our earlier episode on that. But before you check out that episode, let's talk about a monster many people have not have heard of. Oh, and also... Side note, the jinn are not inherently monstrous or evil. They're just different. Uh, we want to thank everybody who took the time to write to us with their own Jin stories after hearing that episode uh, all those years ago. If, uh, if you have a Jin story yourself, we would love to hear it. So please contact us with it. We'll tell you how to get in touch with us at the end of the show. But let's travel to South Africa. Uh, riddle me this, Noel. Have you ever heard of this one, the toko loche?
0: No, I have not. Um, It's fun to say, though. I can already tell you that. (laughs) Right. This was unfamiliar to me. And I think a lot of the um, the things
2: we'll find over these two episodes are going to be unfamiliar to a, a lot of people in the West like you and myself. So the Tokoloshe, also known as the Tikoloshe, is this diminutive, like really short, hairy South African demon that apparently can function as a kind of hitman you contact a um an evil practitioner of the spiritual arts which might be called a witch doctor and uh then they will build this thing to take revenge on your enemies it's like a it's a water sprite it's tough to catch cuz it be, can be invisible it renders itself invisible by drinking water or by swallowing a stone and uh we actually in our research found Maybe more of a mundane explanation for them uh, that comes from Bantu folklore as a way of explaining why people seem to inexplicably die while sleeping at night.
0: Correct. Um, That's because traditionally folks in this part of the world live in kind of stone yurts, I guess, like uh, you might think of in a state park for, you know, glamping. Um, Traditionally, folks there would sleep on the floor on these woven grass mats uh, that would circle a wooden fire pit in the center of of the yurt that would, of course, warm them during the very, very, very cold winter nights. In this terrain, this this part of the country can get quite cold at night. Um, So for a long time, folks didn't realize that the fire was in fact uh, messing with the levels of oxygen and causing carbon monoxide. Think of it as like running a car in a in a garage, you know, or something like that, or just what can happen if a fire happens uh, in your home. And that's why we have carbon monoxide detectors because it literally does replace the breathable oxygen with carbon monoxide and you can you can breathe that and you won't really know the difference until you kind of your body just shuts down. I mean it's not exactly the same as like suffocating or drowning because I think it's easier to not realize what's going on, right Ben? Yeah, exactly because you are unconscious so you may simply
2: go to sleep and not wake up. It's a very scary thing, but it's also a very real thing. So again, people wanted to explain what was happening? Eventually, they realized that if you happen to fall asleep in an elevated position, you wouldn't be in danger from this curse or these attacks. Because, you know, as as we know, as you explained, when you are prone on the ground, your your head is in that air that like layer of carbon monoxide. But when you're sleeping in, say, a sitting position of some sort, then you're still breathing oxygen. So this story came about saying that there was a short supernatural entity about yay high. I mean, we're an audio podcast right now, so just picture me pointing to my hip, about as high as mm. an average person's hip, and uh, it couldn't get you if your bed or your sleeping area was elevated high enough. Uh, there was, by the way, one silly, kind of silly, not not safe for work detail that I had found, which was uh some rumors said that the Tokoloshe was pretty well endowed for its size, and one way it would take revenge on people is uh, targeting their wives, and uh, then the wife would become, or the spouse or significant other would become uh, embroiled Damn. in a uh, oh yeah, in an adulterous relationship, and that that would be the biggest revenge, but usually the idea was that the Tokoloshe would be set upon someone to kill them. And we're not Zulu Joksa speakers, so uh, forgive our pronunciation here, but we found some grisly details about how these creatures are created or summoned.
0: Yeah, and I will also say that a quick Google of of Tokoloshe, there are quite a few what appear to be pretty B or C level movies oh yeah about oh, the, yeah. the tokoloche well there's one from the 60s that's g-rated and looks like a kind of like more of like a like a children's film uh, it, lo- it looks pretty cute but there's one called Tokoloche the calling and just the you can tell by the cover alone that it's uh, absolute trash and then another one that's just called the Loche and uh, the tagline is where she goes. It follows, and then it's got like a little girl in a hallway and some spooky fingers reaching out, but it just looks like the worst kind of CGI I've ever seen. Um, But yeah, you know, the the whole... Well endowed bit is interesting too. There's a. Uh, I'm sorry, I keep going in the pop cultural rabbit holes, but there's so I'm realizing so much of this stuff is fodder for like science fiction and like you know oh, fantasy
2: sure. horror uh, as well.
0: Mm-hmm, horror as well, of course. There is a. Uh, a it's not. it's not Miyazaki, but it's a Studio Ghibli movie called Pompoko, and it's about these. Kind oh yeah. Of like these uh, I watch that. These, yeah, they're these like um, uh, what do you call it? Tanuki. Like, shape-shifting Tanuki's, and they all have giant testicles. That they mm-hmm. do not shy away from at all in the kids' animated movie. And I think they even use it as a superpower in some parts to kind of generate like a net, or they, they use it to yeah. like catch the wind and they can like windsurf on their giant testicles. Uh, so I wonder if that's any uh, you know, commonalities between these two creatures. I and mean, these, these guys, and these guys also, now I'm getting caught back up in the elves, but the Tanuki in Pompoco, they also sabotaged uh, construction sites. And right to protect their forests, to, to protect their forests and their habitats. Um, but yeah, some of these details about the summoning or you know uh, calling of the Tokoloshe are are a little a little chilling. Um, we've got someone kind of contacting a, a witch doctor and then, you know, that is a loaded term. Uh, we of course think of the Alvin and the chipmunk song, you know, I called the witch doctor and like, ooh, ooh uh, ting, ting, walla, walla, bing, bang, all very broad borderline offensive, uh, caricatures of, you know, Island, kind of folks and in this sort of idea of this sort of form of Santeria and all of that stuff, and very, you know, ca- cartoonishly rendered. So let's just – the the term witch doctor in and of itself, I'm sure there's a better name. Like in, uh, I believe, like, like a Bruja is one name for them. Like in, a Bokor. You know, yeah, exactly. There's a ton of different ones. So witch doctor is – in and of itself, a little weird. Um, so, But we are talking a little bit in general terms. Um, so they are contacted. They are hired. Also, this idea of them being, like, inherently evil somehow plays into a lot of these uh, these depictions, which, I don't know, I, w- I don't want to hire anybody evil. I'm just going to be a monkey's paw kind of scenario.
2: Well, yeah, sometimes, and there very much is one here, like, sometimes, you know, if you're thinking of a spiritual practitioner in this tradition, there will be... Uh, healers, right? Uh, people who banish evil spirits and bad vibes. And then on the other side, there will be more of a left-hand path, they would call it, in some uh, European magical belief systems. And that's very much the Sith Lord stuff. So yeah, not all of these practitioners are the same by any means. But in the stories, you reach out to this uh, bad actor, spiritual practitioner, and you as the client are seeking revenge, you pay them maybe with maybe with money, maybe with some other things, right? Some other things of value, but the main thing you have to pay in the story is the promise of the soul of a loved one. With a very important caveat, you do not get to choose which loved one will be taken. The tokoloshe itself decides when and how it will take that soul and they decide who they're going to get.
0: Yeah, these are all again like these are very devil's bargain kind of situations where it's it's set up for you to fail. You know, you, you go to one of these things like as a last resort because maybe you heard that they could like really do crazy stuff and they could get you your revenge and you're so blinded by the need to to enact whatever this revenge or to solve this problem might be that you don't think about the fact that this is ultimately going to come back on you. I mean, it really is like the ultimate kind of monkey's paw situation. And it's pretty grisly, the uh, creation process, according to the lore.
2: This practitioner, once the deal is made and you have your covenant, will procure from somewhere a dead body, a dead human body, piercing the eye sockets in the brain with a hot iron rod. The logic here being this removes the ability of the, the human spirit to think for itself. They'll, then they'll sprinkle the corpse with a magic powder that causes the thing to shrink, the tokoloshe will then possess the body, it will enact revenge against the target, and you will never know when your part of the bargain comes due. The tokoloshe may take its payment a few weeks later, or a few months later, or even years after the fact. It will take the soul of a loved one. So it's heavy stuff to mess with. I guess you really have to want that revenge, but uh, it is something that is still uh, reportedly believed in some communities in this part of the world. Although I should say, again, with with many of these stories that we're talking about, a lot of these beliefs are kind of on the decline. They're sort of on their way out uh, demographically. You'll see that a lot of younger folks um, don't, don't really buy into these concepts. But a lot of older folks uh, genuinely do still believe in them. And um, I'm, I'm saying that to set us up for, for our next one, which we talked about in our uh, Metaverse stuff, which is not so much an entity as it is an action, an intention, and the protection from that action or intention. It can be a little confusing to people, but you definitely heard of it before, Nazir. The evil eye.
0: That's right. It's interesting because, you know, I'm, if anyone's ever been to, say, like a Latin kind of market or, um, you know, even like an Asian Asian market or like a bazaar like in another country, if you're traveling, um, you are likely to see trinkets or amulets or rings or, you know, pendants or whatever depicting this like blue kind of crystalline, you know, flat circle with an eye uh, drawn to the middle of it. And in fact, it is now an emoji. If you type in evil eye on your iPhone, you will get the exact image that I'm talking about. And there's another one that comes a little more from, I believe, Islam. That's sort of a hand with some fingers folded and like the eye kind of in the center of the hand. That one also comes up. And it is this concept of protecting yourself against someone who is looking upon you with a covetous nature, you know, maybe not necessarily cursing you or wishing you death or misfortune, but just the very act of like people, if, if you're in a position of uh success or prominence, you can elicit a lot of this kind of negative energy and the evil eye or the Nazar um, is in fact a, uh, a, a, a medallion or, a, you know, a kind of an item that protects against that. So even though you'll sometimes hear the thing itself, the image, the icon referred to as the evil eye, it's actually a, a protective uh, um, artifact or a protective symbol. It is not the, uh, the evil eye itself. It's just sort of a term that's sort of used to describe the thing uh, by the thing that it protects against. Hmm. Yeah,
2: and what what you'll see about this one, what I think is so fascinating about the idea of this curse, is that it is so very widespread and very old. I believe the the first documented evidence of the evil eye comes from Ugarit. Uh, an ancient city in modern day Syria. It was around until it was destroyed in 1250 BCE during the bronze age collapse. Check out our episode on that. So we know that this is even older. You'll find versions of it in Turkey and Greece and the Arab world, even in Japan, it occurs in uh, some Jewish literature. It's in Italy. It's, it's nuts. What we can learn from this is that people have been hating on each other and concerned about haters since before people learned to write things down.
0: Yeah, I mean, it really is a kind of part of the human condition is someone gets something, inevitably another person's going to look at it and want what that person has. Uh, and back in the day, you know, you might well get murdered for that thing, you know, um, have it taken from you, um, you know, right there in the street because it just wasn't, there weren't, you know, systems in place to protect people from from stuff like that. It really was kind of like a, the, the survival of the fittest. This image, though, uh, specifically even with the blue pigmentation, Goes back to ancient Egypt. Uh, the eye of Horus is a symbol that we we all may be well familiar with it 's got this kind of eye with like a really dope kind of like brow thing protruding from the top, and then this like awesome little kind of curly cue kind of golden ratio thing popping off the bottom and that was buried with pharaohs to protect them. Um, in the afterlife. And then we even have There's a really great article on BBC.com uh, um, about the history of this thing uh, by a guy named Quinn Hargitay. And uh, he goes through kind of the history of the thing. And the thing that's so fascinating is it just, it's like parallel thinking across these cultures that you're talking about. It's not like one necessarily borrowed it from another. It just sort of kind of seems to pop up you know, separated by oceans and, uh, you know, in, in the similar way that there are certain gods in different pantheons that kind of mimic each other's functions because, you know, everyone needs to grow crops, everyone needs to survive, everyone needs to be fertile or whatever. So it makes sense that there would be a stand-in deity uh, with similar abilities, you know, f- even, even if, you know, folks had never heard of uh, Horus or, or, or heard of, uh, you know, Zeus or Hephaestus.
2: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's understandable because people tend to have the same concerns. the The fancy word for what the evil eye as a protective sigil is is apotropaic magic, protective magic. The type of stuff that's meant to turn away harm or evil influences. And it also makes sense that uh, people are speaking through their cultural framework to their. Uh, you know, really common experiences. Everybody has the same hardware. You communicate a lot with your eyes, you know. Uh, So, of course, people would be preoccupied with things like hands, things like eyes. You know what I mean? There's way less emphasis on things you don't think about as much like the elbow. Um, Also, you know, of
0: course, known in scientific circles as the weenus. Super scientific term. No one's ever going to question that or has ever questioned it. Uh, The thing that's so interesting, too, is if I'd forgotten about this, the blue pigment or the blue color, I Mm -hmm. think may uh, date back to the Greeks. um, The idea that um, those with blue eyes were better at transmitting these uh, curses. Yeah, it was a rarer eye pigment at the time and in that part of the world. Yeah. And blue eyes in general, as we recognize them today,
2: come from like an ancient mutation in Estonia or something. It's, it's fascinating. I think green eyes were there too, but they were sort of the Pepsi to the Coke blue eyes were, were the way to go. And, you know, you might, you shouldn't be surprised if you see stuff like this, like you were describing all if you see stuff like this in the modern day. And I remember we we're talking about this previously, uh, one of the folks we're working with was asking us uh, how, we would, uh, how we would rock this charm. And my idea was that if I, if I was convinced I needed uh, some apotropaic magic and I needed an evil eye, then it would be like my first tattoo. One big evil eye on the chest, and then my second tattoo, another one on the back, Bring just up the rear. <laughs>
0: yeah, cover the bases. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, it really is, is is a fascinating subject just because of a lot of the you know the way we see it kind of spreading throughout cultures. Plutarch, uh, who was a a very you know uh, learned man in, in ancient Greek uh, culture, uh, was a philosopher and uh, you know a historian as well. I mean, to to a degree, um, he wrote the Symposiacs, uh, in which he you know, would espoused kind of the best <laughs> equivalent of science that they could kind of muster at the time. And one of them was, th- th- one that makes sense, we talked about this at the, at the thing that we did, um, the idea that the eyes are such an important part of, 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 the, of the human body, both functionally but also spiritually. You know, they say things like the eyes are the window to the soul. And if you can look in a window, can't you also put stuff out of a window? And the idea that the eyes are, are where these evil kind of energies can be transmitted. Plutarch literally believed that they were like invisible rays like of energy that could, if, if, if made potent enough or harness, uh, harnessed correctly, actually, this is, this is coming from this article in BBC, kill children or small animals. Yeah, yeah. Basically, Plutarch
2: argued that some people were like Cyclops from the X-Men. And they had laser eyes. Yeah, or Superman, were you dangers. know, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's a Superman. trope we
0: see in superpowers or, or or demons or, you know, folks with kind of otherworldly abilities to be able to shoot fire or lasers out of your eyes, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, the I mean, it's important to say
2: Plutarch was not alone in this. Of course, uh, Plato, Pliny the Elder, many, many people believed in this and continue to do so today. So if you see somebody doing that, uh, then... Don't give them a hard time. Respect their beliefs. And honestly, I'm always of the mind that if someone is doing something that they see as a protective measure and it's not hurting you or impacting you in any way, then, you know, don't yuck their yum. Mm. Uh, If it's important to them, be respectful.
0: I do think it's funny, too, how something like a pentagram or a pentacle, you know, is meant to be a protective sigil but is often incorrectly associated with like devil worship, or it's seen as the opposite as though it's trying to cast a spell to hurt somebody or represent the, uh, the malice, the malicious kind of intent that the evil eye might. Um, but what it actually has been to do is to protect you from these kind of negative, you know, energies. Mm-hmm. And of
2: course there's the evil eye hand sign. You'll have to check that out if we're on YouTube for this part. Uh, You know, Noel, I think at this point, we've talked about some things that could be genuinely frightening for people. And we've talked about ancient practices in the modern day. But what if we end today's episode by taking a a little break to toss some evil eye protections up and looking into a more modern thing that goes bump in the
1: night?
0: $25 each.
1: Visit LiveNation.com slash concertweek to buy now.
0: That's LiveNation.com slash week to buy now.
1: I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff.
3: In my new podcast series, Cold Blooded, the Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper.
1: Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us
0: Thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything all these years. I didn't say anything.
3: listen to cold blooded the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner,
1: Gene Eugene Fodor.
5: Gene was good.
4: Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with.
1: So you hide the books, Gene, and blast on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man, uh, is a wise woman.
4: But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze,
1: Americano! Gene! Huh? Oh! Run!
4: So travel before it's too late. Your money will return, your time won't, and we're all too quickly approaching that final
0: destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. From the trenches, we share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: And we have returned. Okay, so what if one thing that went bump in the night? wasn't a creature at all. As strange as it may sound, for, um, for a pretty significant number of years, a lot of people in parts of Asia were convinced that standing fans were a one-way ticket to an early grave. You might recognize this urban legend as something called fan death. And the idea is that if you leave an electric fan on running in your home at night, Running in your room, and you don't have a door open or a window cracked, then you will die. And uh, we talked about this previously, actually, checked off air to see if our pal Mission Control had heard of it. And Paul, you confirmed that you had what might surprise people is this belief was prevalent in the early 2000s, which wasn't too long ago. I mean, you know, 20 years ago now, but not too, too long ago. Uh, it was It really got a lot of attention in South Korea, as well as parts of Japan, and we talked a bit about why people thought this would be dangerous. To be clear, they didn't think it was demonic possession. They didn't think, you know, it was some sort of curse. They thought there was a scientific explanation for why leaving a fan on at night would kill you.
0: Yeah, it's weird, man. There's a couple. (laughs) <laughs> my, yeah, favorite one I think is, uh, my favorite one, I think, is my favorite one. I think is is slicing the molecules, chopping of the air. oxygen molecules, yeah, yeah, chopping them, chopping them up, making them too small to, to to be functional. I guess I I I don't know, but no, it it is. I think perhaps a combination of sort of like new technology or maybe not new technology, but like there's sort of like a fear of change, um, you know, in a part of the country where things I think maybe were had been typically a little more analog in terms of this kind of stuff, although it is funny that, you know, you don't hear about this. Uh, Fear associated with ceiling fans as much specifically these like portable plug-in standing fans And when you first brought this topic up and I hear standing fans I'm immediately thinking of like are those like standing stones are these some sort of like weird Marker of druidic Ritual or what are we talking here, but no, we're literally talking about like a tripod kind of like caged fan
2: Yeah, yeah, and I I agree the role of new technology had to play a a sociological part here. Let's talk through some of the other theories. One concern was found in hypothermia. So long story short, if you're a human being, when you go to sleep, your metabolism naturally slows down a bit. So people would argue that because the air blowing on a sleeping person could ostensibly cool them a little – that combined with a slower metabolism could lower your body temperature to the point that your organs fail. Before we do a little myth busting with that one, the next one is carbon dioxide poisoning, right? Similar to what was actually uh, happening with uh, with people in South Africa. The idea here was that the fan emits uh, these chemicals while the motor runs in a closed room, and it's the the carbon slowly asphyxiates anybody asleep there. So those are the big explanations. I also think the one about a fan mutilating oxygen molecules is the most interesting because we live in a southern part of the United States where it gets very hot, and I've never had a standing fan that that effective, you know? Uh, this. So if there was one, I would buy it, is what I'm saying. Uh, this urban legend, like, It's strange the first reports date back to the 1920s, but they don't really take off till the 70s. And there may have even been a little bit of a conspiracy afoot, which we'll we'll get to at the end. But we know that people are so concerned whether or not You agree with this idea. People were so concerned that a government agency, the Korea Consumer Protection Board, issued a safety alert about it in 2006. And they said if you're exposed to fans or air conditioners for too long, you will lose water, you will begin to have hypothermia, you could die from this uh, carbon dioxide saturation. And it claimed that from 2003 to 2005, at least 20 people died as a result of this. But there's more to this story. I mean, we have to to first off say, again, living in the South, we know this all too well. An electric fan doesn't really chill the air. It just moves it around. That's why if you've ever had a job in like a hot kitchen or a warehouse, or you've just been in a place without AC, you eventually notice the fan is just kind of making a breeze. But if the air is still really hot, that breeze is going to be hot, too. It doesn't do that much. Uh, also, hypothermia if you um, if you look at the temperature that's required for organ failure to come in, there's no way that a fan is going to get your body to that level. You have to drop your internal temperature has to drop it below 86 degrees Fahrenheit or 30 degrees Celsius. And I think the main thing. One thing that stuck with all of us, Matt, as well, from a production standpoint, is most homes are not airtight. Like across the world, they're not. Certainly not enough to cause suffocation. Can you imagine how expensive it is to build just one room like that, let alone an entire house? What kind of doors do you have? Do you have to have an airlock at that point?
0: Right. I mean, we know, you know, I mean, how difficult it is just from like doing stuff in the studios to, you know, seal a room so that sound doesn't escape and uh, sound travels on air. So in order for a room to be completely like hermetically sealed like that it would not come with just like standard, you know, construction, uh, uh, especially maybe in a part of the country where things are even less tightly sealed t- to a degree, like. Uh, certain homes in maybe more rural parts of Asian countries might have more traditional kind of like old school um, features like, um, you know, wood, more, more wood design or like wood paneling or perhaps uh, rice paper for, for windows and panels and things like that.
2: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, but the only fans that I've ever been really, really concerned about have been the um, like old industrial style Uh, steel blade fans, if they don't have that wire cover. And then I'll be honest, you know, they have a paranoid dude, janky ceiling fans that like, that's a pit in the pendulum kind of thing. When you, as a matter of fact, let me look and make sure mine's off. Uh, You know, everybody's seen those in a house, the ones that kind of swing on their own little rhythm and vibe. And you have to wonder how long it is before they decide to take off for the ground. The good news is, Uh, nowadays, most people don't believe this myth. But for some, it remains a better safe than sorry situation. You could say, look, I'm not a crazy, paranoid person, but just in case, let me leave the door ajar. And this is where we get to the conspiracy, where I think we end our episode today. We found in our research that There are some pretty, I won't say airtight, (laughs) uh, there's some pretty compelling theories that the government of South Korea, at least, may have helped spread the myth a little bit as a way of combating skyrocketing energy use during the very hot, humid summers in that country, in that part of the world. So there we have it. There's no proof of anyone actually experiencing fan death, but it's easy to understand why some people decided to play it safe, and maybe to this day, won't trust a fan at night, and no. Here we have to. Here we have to call it a day. We'll be back uh, in just a few with part two of this. But we're going to have even more uh, modern weird examples. We had one that Matt's really into called the Ahool. No spoilers. Ahool! Yeah, <laughs> that's a fun one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the night dancers. Of course, we've got to go to the Philippines with the Aswang, and of course the white lady. Uh, but In the meantime, you know what I think we should do? I think we should ask our fellow conspiracy realists if there are any genuine beliefs in monsters in their neck of the global woods.
0: Absolutely. I'd love to hear uh, what some of the um, the myths and stories around where you live might be, or if in fact there are ones that people genuinely steer clear of certain parts of the woods to avoid because they think there's some truth to them. Uh, let us know. You can uh, reach out to us via social media where we are Conspiracy Stuff uh, on Twitter and YouTube and Facebook, where we also have a Facebook group called Here's Where It Gets Crazy. or Conspiracy Stuff Show on Instagram. And hey, while you're on the internet... Why don't you go and uh, reserve yourself a copy, pre-order a copy of our book, "Stuff They Don't Want You to Know," the book, um, available soon, October 11th, in fact, any day now. Mm -hmm. It might be out as this episode comes out, as a
2: matter of fact. Uh, But either way, yes, get the to uh, your favorite bookstore or platform of choice we can't wait to hear your thoughts you can also call us directly we have a phone number that's right say it with me 1833 stdwytk you'll hear a familiar voice you will hear a beep like so beep and then you'll have three minutes they're yours go nuts give yourself a cool nickname an appellation a moniker an aka we love them tell us what's on your mind let us know if we can use your name and or voice on the air and most importantly don't edit yourself if you have a story that needs more than three minutes we want to hear it we want those links we want those photographs we read every single email we get all you have to do is drop us a
0: line where we are conspiracy at iheartradio.com